Wellness Force Radio, episode 12. No tool, device, or even educational content is going to do anything for you, right? You could have a literally the most knowledge on every one of these subjects, and it will confer zero benefit to you if you don't do the right thing, right? Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. So it all comes down to, does the knowledge that you have get you to have an effective health practice long-term? Welcome to Wellness Force Radio, where you will hear inspiring and passionate experts in the areas of wellness technology and behavior change. Your host, Josh Trent, will empower you with the knowledge and tools you need to take the very best actions in transforming your mindset, your body, and ultimately your life. Now, here's your host. Wellness Force Radio, welcome back for another educational and inspirational show. I am your host, Josh Trent. Thank you so much for sharing a little piece of your day to hang out outside walking your dog, running at the house, wherever you are right now. Thank you. The mission of the show is to find the most inspiring and passionate experts in behavior change and wellness technology. These are the thought leaders. They're dedicating their lives to empowering others with knowledge and tools that drive real transformation in our physical and emotional wellness. Show notes from today, as well as the free resources mentioned, can be found at wellnessforce.com slash radio. If the show today means something to you or resonated with you, please share it with friends or family that you care about. I depend on your ratings and reviews in iTunes to keep bringing on the best information and leaders. So please drop us a quick rating and review in iTunes today. I would so appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Today I am talking with author, speaker, educator, and health and wellness entrepreneur, Dan Party. I want to read Dan's eclectic bio. Dan is an entrepreneur and researcher whose life's work is centered on how to facilitate health behaviors in others. He is the developer of the loop model to sustain health behaviors to help people live a healthy lifestyle in a modern world. He does research with the psychiatry and behavioral sciences department at Stanford and the departments of neurology and endocrinology at Leiden University in the Netherlands. His current research looks at how sleep influences decision-making publications. Dan also works with Naval Special Warfare to help the most elite fighters in the world maintain vigilant performance, both combat and non-combat conditions. Formerly, Dan served as the board chairman of the investigator-initiated Sponsored Research Association, a global nonprofit aimed to promote best practices in the arena of academic research and grants. Early in his career, he served as a Division I strength and conditioning coach, where he designed year-round training protocols for 13 different athletic teams. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Josh. I am thrilled to be here. Dan, this is exciting. We had talked a little bit before the show started about technology and behavior change. For our audience who's, who's chiming in today and listening, today's show is all about how we can connect technology to behavior so that we can essentially lead better lives. Dan, we are stoked to learn from you. So thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, I often talk about sleep, but because that's an area that um, I do a lot of research with, but this is such a passionate area of mine because it's about translating knowledge into applications that people can benefit from. And that is a really fun, interesting, and challenging puzzle. And so I'm so glad that you're providing a platform for uh, for this type of discussion. So thank you, Josh. Absolutely. I, what are you most excited about right now? You know, we talked about how there's this really upswing and burgeoning technology space and all the things you're doing with Dan's plan and human OS. We're going to dive into all your projects, but 
right now today, as you sit and, and we have this discussion, what are you most excited about and grateful for in life right now? Well, I am, I, I think that behavior modification, behavior change is an interesting academic topic. Um, I think you need to not use that language specifically when designing health applications. Um, it's, now there's going to be a type of audience that's going to key into this to find it really find it really interesting, but then there's basically this academic way to view how do we get people to modify their behavior, and then there's a way that that actually applies. And I like to think about the whole chain from the neuroscience of what's going to reinforce a behavior in order for it to happen again, all the way down to what the user experience and the UI design looks like in any sort of application that somebody's interfacing with. Um, I actually like the entire the entirety of the, the thought process. Um, and and that's, I think, what gets me really, really excited. And I also think there's, there's a lot of opportunity to do something that's never been done before. And while... I'm very excited about a lot of the technologies that are coming to market. I think that there's room for improvement and I have ideas about how to do that. So I'm, I'm, I've got my hands kind of like rubbing together with this evil look on my face, like, all right, we're going to bring something really, really good to the, to the world. And <laughs> now's the time. Yeah. You're like the mad scientist with good intentions. That's right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> So that's cool to learn about what you're excited about. And, and I know that everyone has probably heard of you or the work that you've done. If they haven't, can you paint a quick picture of your story leading up to creating Dan's plan and that transition to human OS? Absolutely. A, a common story that I tell that is absolutely based off of my the real experience. I was doing cancer research in the early 2000s, looking at how lifestyle affects the progression of prostate cancer. My father was diagnosed with cancer, and I felt I was in a unique position to help him. And we would sit down, and I would tell him all the things that I thought that he could benefit from. And he would be very proud of me, but he would not change anything. And then we would revisit, and then we would talk again and have more of a heart-to-heart and that basically continued that process uh, until he passed away. And I thought that I had really failed him. And it, it left a very strong impression with me at that time, which is it's not enough to know or then to just share really good information. If you want to really help people, you need to understand what is affecting behavior, all the different aspects. And that set me on a journey to try to create a system or a model, which I did, called the loop model to sustain health behaviors. And really the, the emphasis, the goal is, how do you get an individual to perform the right action for life? There's so many things that might be able to affect what you do for 12, eight weeks, one month, uh, but there might be a high variability in terms of the, the daily pattern that you maintain. And the premise that I base my company on and the work that I'm doing is that so much of chronic disease and health issues that we do not want to deal with, and also so much about performing at our optimal on a day-by-day -day basis, both of those are basically two sides of the same coin, comes from maintaining an effective daily health practice. And effective means that you're doing, you're fulfilling all of the different lifestyle and environmental inputs necessary in order to make your body thrive. And that is a really important point is that left alone, our tissues do not perform at their best. They require input from lifestyle. They require input from our environment in order to function well because over the course of evolution, that is, those are the conditions that our bodies were shaped by. 
mm. um, getting enough physical activity in our light, having enough, uh, you know, maintaining the right sort of light environment day, evening, and night, our relationship with microbes, our relationship with each other, our relationship with food, and all of these things, it can seem very, very complex, but I think it's also very achievable to create a personalized practice, which is the willful efforts that you will make to counteract these forces of modernity, things that get you to sit in your chair all day long and to sit, be inside and to eat the wrong foods, all that, so that you can move through life with excellent health and with great functioning on a day-by-day basis. I think it's very achievable. I also think that we need some help. And that is where I think applications like you know health technologies can come in and support a person. And so I'm very excited about that. And a long time ago, I described Dan's plan as basically a mashup between these two different movements. One is the ancestral health perspective about how to be healthy, which is a paradigm, right? So it's not necessarily only looking to the past to try to be healthy, but but making sure that that is a loud voice in what is crafting your own uh, your own health practice. What should we be doing? Because even though I'm a scientist and I believe a lot in science, uh, we don't have all the information that we need in order to make uh, decisions about lifestyle. So we need to then have a bias. And the, my bias is that, okay, well, in the absence of perfect information, I'm going to do the more natural approach. All right. And that's, I think, a really safe way to do it uh, most of the time. And so that's a really good paradigm. But just believing that is also not necessarily enough. You also need to then be able to then have things that can remind you to do the right things, that can make it simpler for you to do it on, on a day-by-day basis, to, to engage you so that you stay involved with your own practice long-term. And that's, that's what I want. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, that's exciting too, because when we talk about, I'm sure you're familiar with BJ Fogg and tiny habits and yeah. the ability for people to make small incremental changes. You, you touched on something really unique when you said, you know, the relationship with food, the relationship that we have with others, the relationship that we have with our movements, if someone is just starting out on their journey, it's difficult to know what that relationship is without some kind of mediation platform like a wearable or like an app or like something that they can use on a daily basis that gives them that accountability, that checking in. What was your desire and what was your consciousness behind creating Dan's plan in the first place? Yeah, so... It was to tether together all of the different uh, drivers of behavior. So we have a cognitive side. What we believe absolutely shapes what we do. Now, our behaviors don't always align with our beliefs, but they do matter, right? Our beliefs can shape how we view the world, what we're trying to achieve, and um, and that matters, right? Do you think dietary fat is, is good? Do you think it's bad? Do you think you should be running ultra marathons? Whatever your belief is, right or wrong, good or bad, it can shape what you do. So that is an, that is a component. And that's actually one, I would say, minor criticism of BJ Fogg's work. They're very, the, it's excellent work, but it is very focused on the mechanics of behavior modification. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be, just for your audience who's probably aware, if they've listened to other of your podcasts, know that uh, he talks about tiny habits. And the idea of a tiny habit is to do one, something very, very small, that is triggered by some activity in your environment. So let's say you want to start flossing uh, your teeth because you haven't been doing that. Well, instead of trying to floss all of your teeth every day, start with a task that you can absolutely do that's so easy that it's hard not to do it. And that would be flossing one tooth. And you tie that to an activity that you already do regularly. Let's say that's brushing your teeth. So every time you brush your teeth, you're going to floss one tooth. And then over time, because you start to get into the habit of doing it day by day, 
then you start to then floss, you know, more teeth and then all your teeth. And actually there's some really good guidance there. But I, unfortunately, a lot of things in health, they require more than just a mechanical execution of, of habits. They also require a, an intention, an intention by what you believe, what you think. And so why would you continue to do something unless you know why you're doing it? And so much of what, our, what health is, in my opinion, in today's world is counteracting kind of the default modern lifestyle, right? It's easy to get up, drive to work, sit all day, drive home, sit, sit again in front of the television, watch TV. And in fact, so much of our life is incentivizing us to do that. I mean, it makes a lot of people sit at a computer all day because that's what pays the, you know, that's what pays the bills. Sure. And so you need to make time to counteract this, to get outside, to get sunshine, to get the movement. And so um, you need to know why, because being healthy can be less convenient and, and you know, in terms of you know, time, in terms of effort. And so in order to sustain something long-term, I think it absolutely helps to know why you're doing it unless you are you know, your environment is just kind of shaping it. Now, it doesn't mean you need to be an expert at all things related to health. I don't think the goal is to make somebody a PhD in every different discipline involved in health. But I think having some idea about, hey, this is why I'm doing it. It matters to me. And that's very clear in your mind is, a, is very useful. So, Dan, let's, let's dive into these key commonalities for, for this broken lifestyle the, that's the root of modern illness. You touch on this on the site and in some of your yeah. work. What are these key pieces that people are living that are broken essentially from, from modern illness. Yeah. So I, I, I use that as a heuristic. A heuristic is a way to condense a big idea into something that is short, memorable, sometimes even proverbial. And, um, and they're useful. Our, our minds do this automatically subconsciously with a lot of things in the world. Uh, sometimes it can lead to errors in thinking and judgment, but the idea that our, the lifestyle is broken is touching upon the idea that today a child born today is going to be born what it's what is normal and what is familiar by looking around seeing your peers how they're interacting is extremely abnormal to our human physiology right which was shaped not by just the time when you were born but was shaped by millennia before that and how your ancestors moved you know what their pattern of living was like and so we're already being born into something that is very foreign but you know, not everybody suffers greatly. We there's a lot of people that just get moved. They, they do things even accidentally. They have uh, they have hobbies that get them outside. They eat well naturally with a lot a lot of effort. But but we know that 80% of modern disease, which is um, now comprises, which is you know chronic disease, Western disease, is lifestyle oriented, and it is now the amount of death that is suffered in the world is more than what you see from infectious disease, from lifestyle diseases. So things like cardiovascular disease, rheumatoid arthritis, cancers, et cetera. These have a lifestyle component to them, which is absolutely a factor of how we're living. The nice thing is, is that if you know, if you have the right information and the right tools and the right amount of effort that you put in, this is, these are things that you can address. And when you address these certain pieces, are they really at the base level of beliefs or is it something that people become accustomed to just out of laziness or habit? Well, that's the thing. Habits can be formed and break beyond your awareness without your intention for them to, but they can also be formed intentionally. I want to start to do this. You either, whether you know the habit, the, you know, the mechanics of habits or not, you can get into a rhythm where if you repeat it often enough, you can get into a good rhythm, but it can, that habit can break just as often. You could be going to the gym for six months in a row if you're really good about that. And then all of a sudden you could get sick and busy and then you could get out, out of the habit. Um, so 
one thing that we were talking about earlier, understanding what shapes our behavior is what we know, but that's not the only thing. There's also our environment, which is a huge impact on how we live. There's also then, as you say, formed habits. And then there's your social environment. What are the people around you doing? Are the people around you healthy? Are the people around you not healthy and always inviting you to go to um, you know, let's say dominoes or something. Sure. Who are your friends and what are they making you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That shapes how we live to a huge degree. But if you know, you have friends that are actively saying, Hey, let's go for a hike this weekend. Let's we're, we're all doing that. Then that's a, a um, that's a, a very powerful thing too. What I'm, what I'm most interested in is despite your social circumstances, even despite your environment, can we facilitate what's called self-regulatory capability, which means that an individual has the ability to design their environment and to do things well, getting enough sunshine, eating the right food, getting enough sleep, et cetera, that are going, that's going to feed them. So in, even, even being challenged by not having the right so, you know, social circle in terms of you know, getting invitations to go hiking um, and not even necessarily having the best environment, you can start to take control of these things, design, design your life, uh, time in your life, what, how are you going to be spending your time? Also, what your environment looks like, what the, what kind of choices you make available to you. And by getting into that rhythm and habit, then I think what happens is once you start to do the right behaviors often enough, that is reinforcing. Being healthy, doing that well is reinforcing. And a reinforcement is something that is going to augment or enhance the likelihood that a behavior will happen again. If you're exercising to the right degree, it feels really good. If you're not pushing yourself too hard or being you know, it's, it's where it's overly punitive, um, or you're, I don't know, you're, you're not putting yourself in some sort of social environment where it feels really socially awkward. You know, there's some sort of gym instructor that you really dislike. You have to find, you know, what works for you. And sometimes, right. you know, that, 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 you know, the, the drill sergeant is some people love it. Some people don't, but you have to find what, what works for you. And once you do being active, being outside feels really good. And that can actually then perpetuate and reinforce the continuation of those behaviors. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, let's talk about the, the gamification aspect or, you know, some people like some situations, some don't. The gym instructor might work well with someone and it might really be a crash for others. What are some of the things that you've seen in your research and work around gamification and group competition that has really moved the needle for people? Yeah, well, it is. So gamification is this idea that is used in game technology. So whether that is designing a video game, it's it's basically things like leveling up, providing virtual incentives or rewards, keeping something novel and interesting. Is there a way that you can do that with lifestyle where you want to continue to pursue advancement in the game uh, but the application of that is getting you to do, you know, good behaviors that keep you keep you well. And the ideas of that, it's it's there's good and bad. I'll give you an example of a leaderboard. Let's say you're at a company with 50 people, and the company says, "All right, we're going to provide a leaderboard for the amount of steps taken um, every day, and we're going to give um, we're going to give everybody a Fitbit in order to do this." Which, if you're not familiar, a Fitbit tracks you, the amount of steps that you, you take every day. Well. What can end up happening is that the people at the top of the leaderboard feel really good, and eighty percent of the people that are below that can feel marginalized, and 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 that can make feel punitive. It can make you feel bad, and it can make you defect or stop using an otherwise healthy you know device. So you have to be very careful. There are types of people that respond to competition, and there's types of people that avoid it at, at you know like the plague. Um, sure. And so 
one way to do that is to provide level challenges. Uh, another important thing is, is called tailoring, where you're using the right message with the right people. And like you said, so, you know, like we were talking about, sometimes the drill sergeant, you know, way of, of approaching a, a subject or, a, you know, an idea is something that works. It works for the right type of person at the right time. It's usually the type of person that's already doing things pretty well, and they just want that extra motivation to kind of get there. But if somebody's just kind of getting started and they're feeling insecure and uncertain about things, that sort of behavior is less likely to work. And so here's the problem. Uh, one sort of technique or behavior isn't necessarily good or bad, but the application of it can have good uses and it can be used inappropriately. Mm-hmm. And so having a system that has the appropriate amount of flexibility um, that lets somebody kind of self-select and personalize, uh, that that makes it you know infinitely more complex because you're not just doing one thing and trying to get everybody to do that. You're trying to give people the right, you know, the ability to do it the way they want to do it. And that's really important. That's really important. Now, what about the, the, I've actually used with a circle of friends, five of my hiking friends where we do step challenges. Have you used the Fitbit gamification piece or jawbone or any, anything else in that, in that arena? Yeah, I'm in one now. Let me look at my score. Hold on. <laughs> 10,000 steps in five yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. And, and for it. me, it was great because there was actually a few evenings where I found the joy of walking again. And I think a lot of times in the fitness industry, especially walking is laughed at. It's, yeah. it's thought of something that's not really powerful, but, but what I garnered from, from using the Fitbit, I have the surge is that I found that walking was so restorative for me again. And I, and I fell in love with walking again. Have you had any insights from using trackers in your own life? Absolutely. And I had a realization similar to you coming from a performance background, like many trainers do, you're trying to get somebody better at something. Health and performance are not the same thing. And the application of performance exclusively for a health context can be damaging, right? And I'll give you just a crude example. Let's say you can run a seven-minute mile and you want to run a little bit faster. And that's motivating you to get out there and try to perform better. And then you do, right? And you get, you get your mile time down to six minutes and 45 seconds. And then you, then you get even better. You get down to six minutes and 30 seconds. Where does that end, right? Eventually, it can make people do it, – it can make people turn – a healthy activity into an unhealthy one where they're not listening to their body, where they're uh, basically adopting a very large amount of physical activity into their day. And that can then where it can provide too much stress to the body, which can erode organs. Uh, we're now getting wind or getting kind of like uh, kind of sampling like, Hey, this, there is such a thing as too much exercise. Um, and, and that, that, that's been a, a theme that has been perpetuated within the ancestral health space for a while. And, um, I think that you have a, there's a lot of activity that you can do before you start to um, come to that degree of physical activity. But, but however, still, if you're on that path where more is better, it can also be really frustrating. And here's another common example where a former athlete or somebody that has been achieving real regularity where they're training and they get their time, their bench press, whatever measurement better. And then all of a sudden they've got travel, like real life kicks in. They they just can't make it to the gym as much. And now there's this huge amount of demotivation for like, God, how am I going to get back to that place? I got to climb up this hill again. Eventually that can turn a regular athlete and or regular somebody who's exercising and performing these health behaviors regularly into somebody that is just feels like, oh man, I really can't, you know, go to the gym today. Mm. And I, and I had actually a, a very, strong example of this that shaped a tool that I ended up creating. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Two of my friends wrestled at Stanford. These guys are 
to their core. Physical activity is a part of their upbringing and their life. They, they loved it. Both of them, the timing of this was really, ma- really mattered. Both of them came to me one week apart and because they knew of the work that I was doing, they kind of were uh, confessing. They're like, oh man, I haven't been to the gym in a, week, a month. I'm really frustrated. And then I ended up talking with both of them more. And now wrestlers work out extremely hard. And mm. to these guys, a good workout was like an hour and a half or more in the gym. And they both have great jobs and they don't have a lot of time. And so in their mind, their perception of what was valid exercise, what mattered, that anything that, you know, that had merit was doing something that was pretty darn intense. And that got me to start thinking, okay, is that really what, what is needed in terms of physical activity for providing, to, to stimulate health? And that is a different question. So I created something called Intune Training, which stands for Integrative and Opportunistic Training. And if we think about how exercise is in the, in the world, where uh, we, a lot of times today we think about all of our exercise, we cluster it together into a workout. Right, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put on a special outfit. I'm gonna go to a special place, and I'm gonna do something for half an hour to 45 minutes or longer, whatever it is. I like to think about changing somebody's mindset. When when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed, you've got 16 hours of your day, approximately, to fit physical activity into your life. Now, do you need to do it all at once? No, you could do a little bit here, a little bit there. And eventually you can start to shape a mindset. So you're, you're basically finding activity in your world. And in-tune training stands for integrative and opportunistic, right? So you're being opportunistic and you're integrating it into your life. And as I started to do that, as I started to basically follow my own program, it was an absolute game changer for me. Because instead of waiting for that one moment where I had all the time I wanted to go to the gym... I could just, you know, finish an email and do a set of push-ups or a set of sit-ups or a set of bodyweight lunges. And I did. And, you know, some days I might just do one set of push-ups or two. Sure. But I started to end up with a, behavior, a behavioral pattern where I was getting movement into my life on a day-by-day basis. So that's one way to approach physical activity that is kind of decoupling it from a workout. And I think that that's very valuable. Mm. And then the other interesting thing is to say, well, how much exercise do we need in order to provide significant health stimulation? And in order to, to do that, I looked at the Department of Health and Human Services weekly exercise guidelines. They are, um, it's designed by a task force of academics that review the literature and say, okay, how much, let's look at all the literature. What does it tell us? How much activity do we need to do? And the common guidelines that are provided into the United States right now are 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week. Um, and actually it's a range. It's 150 to 300. Do you feel like that's kind of low? Well, no, I mean, this is what the data kind of is indicating. Okay. And, and I think what you find is, and, and, and actually there's an intensity aspect too. So not only is it 150 to 300, but then if you go more intense, so instead of moderate physical activity, you're, go, you're, you're exercising in a more vigorous fashion, then it can be 75 to 150 minutes, right? So you can basically cut it in half, which shows you that intensity is an efficiency measure. And we see that with things like CrossFit, where people get tremendously fit with doing, you know, 20 minutes or less uh, of physical activity a couple of times a week. And so this is now the popularization of high intensity interval training, where you like, wow, we get a lot of benefit if we just bust our butts for a short period of time. Now that it's funny because part of this systematic uh, kind of reduction of physical activity in our world, I think people are looking for the way to get it over with as fast as possible. Sure. And so a lot of times you might hear somebody within this high intensity physical uh, high intensity interval training space 
you know, kind of dismiss any other form of activity. Ah, it's not important. It's not good. It's not something that you should in, kind of include in your life. The way that I look at it is to have a long-term successful relationship with physical activity, a couple of things need to happen. You need to have a variety of options, right? You need to understand what that spectrum of meaningfulness is. And then the other part about in-tune training is not just integrative and opportunistic, but it's also in tune with your body. What is your body telling you that you feel like now? Not very, you're not, not feeling very vigorous at the moment, go for a walk. And by the way, going for walks has an unbelievable effect on our physiology. If you look at the literature, 70% reduction in cancers found by the NIH. It's a 50% reduction in diabetes mm. from di the American Diabetic Association. And it's a 30 to 70% reduction in stroke by the American uh, Cardiologist Association. So you get really big benefits by just getting up and walking enough. It is the number one activity that I prioritize in my life. So I walk a lot and then I get bursts of physical activity into my day. And then I do a couple of actual workouts per week here and there. I just don't wait for those, them to happen. I'm, I'm making sure every day has some physical activity in it. This is awesome because it's almost a, you know, it's a belief system that you've become accustomed to. You've, you've retrained instead of putting on a special outfit, going to the CrossFit box, going to the gym, you're yep. just almost peppering in these functional, healthy movements throughout your day. Has that become, has, how long have you been doing that? Three years. So for the last three years in your own life practice, this application of functional movement in small doses, have you seen physicality wise or biome biometrics wise, anything change for the better? Any hard numbers that people can quantify? Well, so I'm going to draw people to the blog um, that I wrote about this called my 2014 health practice report. So one of the tools that I developed or designed for dance plan actually tracks the amount of physical activity that you're doing. So you have an activity score. And your activity, you get 50% credit from a daily step goal. So it's maintaining enough low-intensity physical activity day by day. The other half of your score is a weekly exercise goal. So you don't have a weekly a daily exercise target. You want to make sure that in a seven-day period, you're getting enough. And that can look a lot of different ways. You could do a lot of exercise on a few days, or you could do a little bit every day. And heck, you know, choose your own adventure. Um, just try to make sure that the level that you're getting, the total quantity is sufficient. And that has been really powerful. So not only do I look at in-tune training on a day-by-day -day basis, because there's a new workout every day, like a, a daily workout. And by the way, they're extremely simple and that's intentional. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But then I enter how much I actually did into this tracker. And then that lets me know what is my level of physical activity relative to the Department of Health and Human Services weekly exercise recommendations? And you know what? Those are the, like I said, those are, that's the, probably the most valid measurement of it, the amount of physical activity that we need. So for a health application, am I getting enough physical activity to be healthy? I've got kind of the bases covered, enough daily steps, enough physical activity. And it is, I, I feel incredible. I, 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 you know, obviously whenever you hear somebody say that when they're promoting their own system, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So sure. I encourage people to get their own experience with it. But a few of people of mine, you know, a few friends of mine, um, people that are actually in the, the kind of the ancestral wellness space have said this has been life changing for them. Because once you start to then think differently and you're not waiting for the perfect opportunity, if you have a minute, you can do something healthy right now. And then you're kind of just doing the workouts when you're feeling good, you know, and you've got a little bit extra energy. You also do the, the workouts to feel good. 
you know, if you're getting feeling a little stagnant in the afternoon, you, you can, you know, you can fit some physical activity into your day and it can keep your, your mind functioning and, and keep you sharp. So, so I think that there's, you know, it's a great utility. We're talking about technology here. You're getting feedback that's meaningful. Like this is my level compared to standards. Um, you're getting some guidance that's going to simplify your daily health practice. Now here, here's something that you can do today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's, you know, you're using some technology like Fitbit that can kind of track things for you, which helps you stay mindful, that can give you insights into things that are otherwise difficult to know. Um, you know, it's hard to know how many steps that you're taking on a day-by-day basis. I can get 10,000 steps without leaving my home as long as I'm walking around my house and, and kind of instead of sitting all day, every time I have a phone call up, walk, you know, pacing, et cetera. And sure. So, right. So that, that's, that, I call these devices performance enhancing devices. They're not just trackers. Don't think of them that way. Don't think I'm going to wear this and it's going to tell me what I'm doing. Think I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. I love how you put that because when I think about where wearable technology is today and where it needs to go, I would love to hear your insights on some of the things that are wrong with wearables right now. For instance, I've taken my surge back twice. It's given me skin rashes. I use three different models, different trackers. I've tried the basis. I've really run the gamut across what device is going to work for me. And I have to tell you, I think we're early in this stage, the seamlessness and the interoperability of these devices with gym equipment and with someone's life is short term. I mean, there was a report in in your Stanford Medicine X post-conference recording about the Endeavor Partners, uh, you know, 50% usage drop after 18 months of activity trackers. What do equipment manufacturers in the health and wellness space need to focus on to make these devices more seamless? So this is such a great topic of conversation. Um, In the Health 2.0 presentation, I modified that slide where I talk about Endeavor Partners um, and the analysis that they they did. And I said, oh gosh, but look at this. Only 50% of people are still using their device at 18 months. And by the way, several uh, reports have recently come out talking about this exact same thing because Fitbit just went public. Exactly. And, and they're in their report, you know, the um, their filings, you could see that this was this was mentioned. But you know what? 50% of people still using a device, a health tracking device, uh, 18 months later is actually also great. So yeah, we want to do better, but how many people continue to use a gym after they sign up for it? A lot less than that. Great and point. So, you know, so you can look at it two ways. There's room to improve, but it's also really good. Okay. So now let's think, how can we do better? And it goes back to the, the beginning of what we were discussing. In order to continue to use these health tracking devices, these, these health performance enhancing devices, you really, it's really good to know why. And in that presentation, I talk about, I say, in order for somebody to continue to use a step counter, it's really useful for you to know that it's a good step counter and not a bad exercise tracker, right? If you're misinterpreting its value, its value, then you're probably not going to continue to use it, right? Not only that, but you need to know that steps matter, right? It does steps well, and that steps are actually important, and how steps then fit into your overall physical activity practice, because it's not the only thing you want to do. How your physical activity practice fits into your overall health practice, because physical activity is not the only thing that matters for health. And how your health practice, which is all the different activities that you're doing to make sure that you're healthy, are solving a problem that you understand. I am counteracting an unhealthy lifestyle, and I know the different key determinants of health, and I know what I'm doing and why. And you don't need to get feedback on every single aspect. The perfect world is not to say, you know, as long as we have 100 apps that are collecting every bit of information, we're going to be fine. No, I just think you need to sample 
important aspects of, you know, different, different parameters, getting some, getting some feedback, keeping you mindful, keeping you engaged in your health practice. And that is, it's, it's basically how all this comes together. These health devices, these health tracking devices are not, they're really, really good. They're not the only thing that's needed in a solution. And in fact, in the latest presentation that I created, I said the, the question that comes up a lot, well, can quantified self change behavior? And so I, th- I think a better way to phrase it is, can quantified self change behaviors that matter? Okay. Can it change behaviors that matter in a meaningful way? Okay. Can it change behaviors that matter in a meaningful way forever? Right. Can it, can it be a part of a health ecosystem that changes meaningful behaviors in a meaningful way forever in some populations, right? It doesn't have to work for everybody in order for it to be good. But because of what we're talking about now, keeping you engaged, keeping you in mindful, tying you into a more robust ecosystem that does other things like education, like giving you daily ideas about how to be healthy. That's, that's almost like a, one of the best parts of these devices is that it can, when done right, it can bring you into the fold of an ecosystem that does a lot of things to support you. And that's, that's where I see the, you know, the genius of a lot of this coming together where you're not just over-relying on knowledge. You're not just over-relying on tracking and triggering. You're using it all together sensibly so that each individual component can do what it does well. And you're not kind of trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. I like like the analogy. I communicate with analogies too. Um, My my girlfriend's always like, you use analogies so much. I can't even follow you. But I love that analogy because when you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, you could bash it in there. It might fit. Everybody is going to approach wearing a device differently. And it's the intention behind why they're going to get the device in the first place that's way more important than the device itself. So like you had said, these can offer us really great mindfulness frameworks for our lives. But unless the intention behind that or the belief system behind wearing that device and why you're doing it is there... I don't think it can be successful. I'd like to wrap up our talk today. I feel like you and I could talk for three hours, Dan. (laughs) But I'd like to wrap up our talk with with just a couple key takeaways for people that are looking to integrate ancestral health and quantified self and self-tracking. What are a few key takeaways from this talk that they can pull as far as action steps? Where do they begin? Well, I think it's really important to understand. Think about these devices Fitbits, you know, any sort of quantified self device, whether it's tracking sleep, activity, whatever it is, they're only as good as the behavior that they're promoting. And I'll tell you that when somebody wears a heart rate monitor, you're also more likely to do activities that the heart rate monitor captures well, right? So you have to also be mindful of a big picture. If I'm trying to create a physical activity practice, so for example, on Dan's plan, we want to help people be an enduring mover. And and the enduring mover is an aspiration. That aspiration is to say, okay, I want to have a capable, resilient, functional body throughout my life. Cool. I want to do that. What do I do? Well, I need to have aspects of, you know, that are going to stimulate stamina, mobility, strength. So I need to then have basically a hierarchy that is then thinking, what are all the things that I need in order to be, have that, this physical capable body? Now, what are ways in order to do that, right? I need to get enough mobility movement in, I need to get enough cardiovascular movement and I need to make sure that my body stays strong and balanced. Is right. So if you're just using a heart rate, you might just become a runner and just run and only do that. And so the devices, the device manufacturers aren't necessarily thinking about the big picture. Um, but you know, this is one thing that I'm trying to do is think about the big picture so that everything is contextualized and you know what you're doing and why, and it makes sense and it's simple. And that that's the one saying that I have on, 
you know, my chalkboard, which is keep everything as simple, uh, keep everything as simple as possible, but not simpler. And this is actually, we should have, we should grow up, um, physical act, you know, uh, you know, PE class should not just be getting outside, but there should be two parts to it, right? There should be getting outside, letting kids run around. There should also be a component that over the course of our education, we're, we're learning the skills to, to work, to treat our bodies well for a lifetime. And I think that that is, I'm writing a book right now and it's all about developing skills to live well in the modern world. And it's based off of the premise that we need to in order to live well. And, um, yeah. And so, you know, you can kind of just see kind of how some of my thinking here, like sure, these devices have a place, but you can't over rely on them. And it's useful to have some sort of system that ties it all together. And when you do, you can start, I think you can start to have clarity and confidence that what you are doing is good. And in the, in this world where there's such a diversity of opinions about this is what you should do and why and how, um, it can actually be very, uh, it can be very demotivating when, you know, the reason why you're doing something is rattled by criticism from somebody else about, oh, you know, I read this report on paleo and it looks like it's just a, you know, a crock, you know, you need, you need to be able to say, well, this is the reason I'm doing it. I need to, I, I kind of need to be able to defend it a little bit, but also hear criticism. That's fine. Sure. But, if, you know, the point is, is that, um, it's easy to have your confidence rat rattled when, um, when somebody comes along and, you know, provides, you know, perhaps even spurious data and, and arguments to, to why you should do that. So, you know, I think we need a masterclass in, in this sort of thing so that we, you know, we end up doing it because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily what you know, it's, it's what you do. It's all about what you do. But I do think that having the right amount of knowledge is an invaluable component so that you stay doing it. You, you continue to elect to do the right thing over time. So. Excellent. Yeah. In the wake of paralysis by analysis, there's a couple key takeaways that I just wanted to, to repeat. You know, it's not about the way that you, what device you get or what kind of new technology you're putting in your body. It's about why you're doing it in the first place. So thank you so much for, for touching on that. I want to give the audience um, a place where they can read more about you, learn about what you're doing with Dan's plan, and maybe just have you touch on that transition to human OS before we say goodbye. Yeah, so you and I, Josh, talked a little bit about this before we jumped on the call, but I've been working on Dan's plan for several years, and it is uh, my attempt to take the behavior model that I developed, which I'll just give you the quick executive summary. It's why, if you're trying to help somebody sustain health behaviors long-term, and that's key, you're trying to help somebody, you're giving them tools so that they do this long-term. No tool, device, or even educational content is going to do anything for you, right? You could have a literally the most knowledge on every one of these subjects, and it will confer zero benefit to you if you don't do the right thing, right? Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. So it all comes down to, does the knowledge that you have get you to do, have an effective health practice long-term? And so um, the executive summary of this loop model is why should you do it? How do you do it? Are you doing it? And is it working? And so what I've been then creating with Dan's plan is a system that can educate. It can give you a daily schedule so that it makes it easy. This is the how-to, right? Oh, this is a really interesting idea about why sleep is valuable and this is what I can do about it. Then you know, am I doing it? That's the tracking element, right? Is it giving me feedback to let me know if my behaviors are aligning with my kind of declared goals? And then lastly, is it working? And this could be things like physical performance tests, mental performance tests, some sort of sample about is the behavioral practice that I've been maintaining over time getting me the results that I want? And if not, you know, I'm going to continue doing the fundamentals, but I might also need to seek some help elsewhere for, you know, sometimes solving a gut issue or whatever, whatever that might be. 
So, um, so that's what Dance Plan is, and we're going to be rebranding to Human OS and launching this fall. I'm super excited about it. When we do, um, basically, it, you know, the the website Dance Plan will just become Human OS, but it'll also launch a, hu- a huge amount of other features that are going to make this loop model you know, fully operational. <laughs> yeah, very cool. I want to yeah. be on the early invite list for that because this is my world. I have so much respect and excitement around what you're doing, Dan. So thank you so much for your life's work and stemming back to what you told us about your father. I mean, that is such a noble element. So I just want to honor what you're doing and tell you that I have full support for everything you're doing with human OS. And when you do launch, let's have you back on the show again for a quick recap about what human OS is and what types of things people are getting from it. That would be really cool. I would absolutely love that. I'm so excited about the people that are starting to participate in it. Some of the really the top researchers and health thought leaders in the world um, are creating some content educational courses for us, um, already. And, uh, yeah, like you said, I'm glad you described it that way. It's absolutely my life's work and it's, it's nice to take a really tragic experience like losing a father at 59 years old and make that in a large part, kind of the, a motivating force for the work that I do. And, um, I, you know, I, again, I really appreciate having me on the show and I'd love to come back on in the fall. So, um, absolutely. Let's do it. Excellent. Dan party. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks for listening to the show. Head on over to wellnessforce.com slash radio for all the links, show notes, and bonus content. If you're interested in changing old habits with new technology, download your free digital health transformation guide at wellnessforce.com slash radio.